as we're preparing today too, I'd like you to know that we'd love to share communion space together at the end of our morning. And so if you have an opportunity either now or just a little bit later on to find some bread, to find some juice, that we might be able to actually share in that space together again. So um, at the beginning of this uh, year, I received an email, or at least um, I sent an email to some of our staff and to some people actually from New Community. And this is how it actually read. It comes up like this. Um, and I'm just going to lean in a little bit to, so I can read this. But this is what the email actually uh, said that I sent out. Um, I sent it to uh, Matt and it said, Hey Matt, do you have a moment, Matt? I have a request I need you to handle discreetly. I'll be busy um, in a prayer session for the rest of the day. No calls, so just reply to my email. So as I sent that message out to a few staff members and some people from New Community, kindly enough, Matt replied, and this is what Matt said. Happy to help. What do you need? And so I replied back to him with uh, my request, and uh, this is how it read. Uh, Great. That's it. Now I can see it a little bit better. Here's what I want you to do for me, because I'll be busy for the rest of the day. I've been working on incentive. And I aimed at surprising some of our diligent staff and members with vouchers this week. I want to handle this personally, and it should remain confidential until they all have the vouchers as it is a surprise. And uh, it continues, I need you to get 10 quantity of Amazon voucher, $100 value on each, total $1,000. You should get them at any store around. After you get them, scratch the back to reveal the voucher codes and take a clear picture of each card and send each picture separately to me here. Please keep the physical cards and receipt for reference. You will be duly reimbursed by the church for this, Matt. Can you get this done? Blessings. And it was at this particular time I started to receive some calls, a call from Yvonne, a call from Matt, to ask if this was actually really me that was sending them the email. I'm not sure what gave it away, whether or not it was the fact that I was in a prayer meeting all day, or maybe there was some of the technicalities of language was a little bit clunky, or maybe it was because I was uh, so generous and I was going to reimburse Matt for all that money and give some away to our amazing staff who do a great job week in or week out, or maybe it was just simply because there was a title at the front that said Rev and they knew that I wouldn't use it. Either way, they knew that there was something a little bit wrong because it wasn't me who'd sent that message at all. It was someone else in a faraway land trying to scam and get some money that would be sent ultimately to them. So we didn't proceed. But it raised the question of identity. Who was I? Who was the person that was sending the messages? And how could we tell? Well, over the past four weeks, we've been exploring this theme called Christian. And uh, as we've been doing that, we've been unpacking this idea of what constitutes Christian. The beginning of the, uh, the journey that Jesus had with followers, you know, taking a claim of him and following him throughout the empire. The name Christian first stuck, if you like, in modern day Syria. And uh, if you had have pressed them and asked them about Jesus Christ, they would have said Christ isn't a surname. Christ is actually a title. So uh, Jesus Christ isn't equivalent to Troy Arnott. It's actually a title. It means king, it means boss, it means son of God. And so those very first followers of Jesus identified with Jesus as being the king, if you like, the Christ, the Messiah in their lives, and they were following him. 
And so it stuck when people wanted to designate who those Jesus followers were very early on in the piece. They were called those, 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 those Christians. And so over the past four weeks, we've been unpacking four convictions that those early Christians embraced, that they embodied, that so transformed the world. And uh, the first three that we've covered go like this. There was a new lifestyle. So there was this sense in which when someone came to know Jesus and he breathed his fresh life into them and he renewed them by his spirit, there was this new sense of a, a lifestyle being adopted. Those commands of God, let's say the Ten Commands, weren't ones that were robbing people of life. They came to see them as being life-giving commands. If you wanted to know where the good life was to be found, the, the God life, the, um, the human, fully human life, it was to be found in adopting God's lifestyle. And even if it meant that it was at odds with the culture around about them, they would embrace it and pursue it and follow it with obedient trust. The second thing we looked at was that there was a new purpose. If you like, like those first gardeners in the Garden of Eden, Adam, Adam and Eve were, were given the vocation and the task of actually extending God's order into a disordered world. Those first followers of Jesus, those Christians saw themselves as being the ones who would bring God's order to a disordered world. In fact, one of the first things that happens in someone's life when they choose to follow Jesus and he breathes their spirit into them is their, their thinking and their minds and their behaviors begin to be reordered according to God's good order. And then the third thing we looked at last week was you gained or they gained a new perspective. They held this conviction that they were wrapped up and caught up in God's bigger picture God's bigger narrative for the world. They believe that that prayer that Jesus gave them, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven, would one, would one day be fulfilled where heaven and earth, God's dimension and our dimension would join together and that they believed and held this conviction that they were wrapped up in a story that was a good news story that ended well. No matter what struggles they were facing, no matter even if, if and when they face death, they believe that they were caught up in a life-giving story and that was good news to be actually, if you like, spoken of throughout the entire empire. And so today, I want to finish off with the, the fourth conviction, if you like, the, the bedrock, the foundation that all of those other three convictions were actually built upon. And it was simply this, and it's simply this, that they held this conviction that they were wrapped up and caught up in a new identity. There was a new sense of who they were. And really at the heart of identity is the question, who am I? Those early first followers of Jesus believed that when they were asked that question, they could answer it in a radical way. They believed that when they came to place their faith in Jesus, that they were actually embodied and embraced into a new family. And they could say with the conviction that I'm actually part of God's family that I am a child of his, that I am a daughter and a son of the living God. You know, when you think about the way in which we construct identity in our own world, it's usually on the basis of what we do or to whom we're in relationship with. It was said of Jesus that he was the carpenter's son, but it was also said of him that he was Joseph's son. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the new identity that's not shaped by what we do or even by the family to which we have been born into now, but by the new identity 
that Jesus gives you when you come to know him. So if you have a Bible there, I'd like to look at two particular passages this morning and we have an opportunity to do that because you're joining with us in your living rooms or if you're interstate or if you're just in the suburb next door or maybe you're in the room right here. If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and take that. And what I'd like to do is look at two different passages. One from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at at passages 13 to 14, 3 to 14, and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1 in a similar way. So whilst you're just finding that, if you're new to the Bible, go uh, turn to the middle and then go far right. And there's two little letters written by a follower of Jesus, a Christian by the name of Paul. And he's writing to a group of people in an open letter that's going to be circulated through what would be in modern day Turkey today. In Colossae and then into that great ancient city port of Ephesus. So as you're turning there, I just want to read together Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, as we unpack this idea of new identity. And this is how it reads. Colossians chapter 1. It says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Messiah Jesus, King Jesus, and as the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the good news, that is the gospel, that has come to you. And in the same way, the gospel bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and truly understand God's goodness, his kindness, his mercy. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Jesus, that is of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, that is of God, and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of him, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And then it goes on. And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, they're powerful words. Words that Paul was wanting to convey to those early Christians, those followers that lived around the area of Colossae. I love this particular ending part that he, he actually summarizes, and it comes up for this, for he says, for in him, and we might just pull that up, Matt, if that's okay. That's it, I can see it so much better when it's on the largest screen. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son in whom he loves. I love that idea, it says that he rescued us. I was talking to a friend some time ago who described a trip he'd recently been on in Brazil. He said he went to a particular beach resort that was a well-known beach resort. And with friends there, in the afternoon, they decided to go for a nice, gentle, relaxed stroll along the beach and enjoy the atmosphere. 
He says, as they were walking away from the resort, just talking amongst one another, they were just taking in all of the sights and enjoying them. Well, they noticed that there was someone, another man, that was walking from the resort towards them quite deliberately, quite intentionally. And when he got to them, he spoke some words to them that were earnest and clear and yet quite frightening. He said, I don't want to surprise any of you or I don't want you to react But what you are unaware of right now is that there is a group of people who are drug affected just up beyond the beach sands where we are right now. He said, in fact, don't look up because only a few weeks ago there were some tourists who had been killed just in this very spot. So much for the actual um, heads up by the resort, hey? He said, but what I need you to do right now is make a decision to turn around without looking surprised and walk back with me to the resort from where you've come. They said in that moment they all turned to one another without looking up beyond the sands into the bushes and they began to just walk back towards the resort. They said afterwards we had no idea that there was a danger around about us but we felt ourselves walking from an area of darkness into one of the light if you like towards the resort. You see in the world in which Paul inhabited it was a world filled with powers Powers in a physical sense, people, forces, armies. But there was also other powers that they believed that inhabited their world, the unseen powers. And that sometimes there was collusion between the two. The unseen powers could shape the visible ones and vice versa were being shaped all the time. So what Paul was trying to get across to those early followers of Jesus is that when you come to know him, he has defeated all of those powers and he uses this world, he has rescued you. That word is, is more, if you like, striking than a gentle, leisurely stroll along the beach to some tourists who've got into a, a dangerous area. It's actually more forceful than that. It means being dragged from, and not for just your benefit, but for the benefit of the person who's doing the dragging. He said, he said what, what you need to understand is that Jesus, when he died on that cross and rose again, he made it possible to actually, if you like, transfer you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light where you do not have to be afraid of the powers, both the seen and the unseen ones. Many years ago, when I was actually in India, I came across a young man who had converted to become a follower of Jesus. He'd come out of a a life that was filled with fear of all of the other powers, seen and unseen. And I remember him saying to me, What made a difference in my life when I came to discover Jesus is that I no longer had to be in fear of the monkey god Hanuman. When I came to know Jesus, if you like, those fears were not realized in the same way because I understood that he had power over all things, the seen world and the unseen world, and over death itself. You see, when someone places their trust and their confidence in Jesus, it's so he drags them, if you like, into his kingdom of light that no dark forces can overcome. I love that idea, that idea of actually being transferred. Your version might say delivered. Another one says transferred. If you like, when someone joins Jesus' team, he says he takes you from a losing team into a winning team. 
Um, could you imagine yourself being put up for the mid-season draft of whatever team, whatever sport? In, in a lot of our sports these days, there's a mid-season draft. So when you come to know Jesus, it's as though you've nominated yourself the mid-season draft and he takes you into his team. And when he takes you into his team, he walks you into the, the new club rooms and uh, he gives you a new uh, sports top and he gives you new boots to play in and he introduces you to a whole new family. And if you like, if you'd been on a losing team, he brings you into a winning team that no other powers, if you like, can overcome. So that's just like it is when you come to know Jesus. And uh, no matter how much the transfer fees might cost, because some teams don't want to let you go, he says that he's paid them all. No matter how small or how large he has paid all of the transfer costs, you don't need to be afraid because you are on God's winning team. You see, when those first followers of Jesus were asked, what is your new identity? Who are you? They could answer unequivocally. Do you know who we are? We've actually been transferred from darkness into light. We have actually been rescued and we are on part of God's winning team. That's our identity. That's one of the convictions that, if you like, transformed a small group of band of Jesus followers that were scaredy cats hiding behind the doors of their, of their houses in fear of the Roman guards, centurions finding them and turning them into, if you like, this radical group of people that would go out into the empire and declare that they had a new identity and they wanted to share about the good news of Jesus. Now, the second passage that I want us to look at is from Ephesians chapter 1. So if you take where you are in Colossians and just go back a few pages, you'll bump into the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And what I want to do is read um, from uh, around verse uh, 3 to 5. Here it is right now. Ephesians chapter 1. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in him. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, that is his goodness and his kindness, undeserved but so freely given from God to us, which he has freely given to us in the one in whom he loves. I love these passages. I love these insights because one of the things that, that uh, Paul wants to convey to them is that uh, if you like, when you come to know Jesus, there's another radical transformation that takes place. You might not feel it all the time, but it's nonetheless true. And that is, if you like, he adopts you into his family. Now, if I was here this morning and we were all gathered together, I would invite you to turn left and right. And uh, look at the person on either side and back and forward. Just give them a little glance. Maybe you can do that right now. Two people are doing it in the room right here. Because one of the profound insights that, if you like, that Jesus' followers had and understood was when they came to place their confidence in him, he welcomed them into a new family. Which means instantaneously, Jesus became the older brother and they just got wrapped up into a new, bigger family with a whole bunch of other brothers and sisters that they were just to meet. And it didn't matter from which background they came from, whether they had a clunky or complex family, or whether they were from an entirely different um, ethnicity, whether they were young or whether they were old, if you like, they were all wrapped up into one family. They were adopted 
and welcomed in to a new home. The story goes that, if you like, that the the Caesars of old used to be in the practice and the habit of adopting, not necessarily the closest person to them to succeed in their line, but adopting someone that was a little bit distant to actually take on their role as Caesar. This was so true of Julius Caesar. When he was untimely killed, they went to his will and discovered that it wasn't his immediate successor, but a great nephew was the one that was actually going to be drawn into and take on the empire. This great nephew was named Gaius Octavius, but he came to be known as Augustus Caesar. They said of Augustus that he was the son of the god Julius, because Julius had ascended into the heavens Therefore, his adopted son, Augustus, was now the son of the God, the son of God, Julius. See, Paul, only a few decades later, would take that very conceptual idea and he would describe it in terms of people coming to know and enter into God's family. He dared to say, actually, I want to tell you about the real son of God. His name's Jesus. And when you place your confident trust in him, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, he welcomes you in, he washes you clean, he forgives you, puts on a new clothing, he gives you new brothers and sisters, and that now is the fundamental identity of who you are. I remember going into a hospital one day and visiting a very unwell lady. I read these words to her about being a son and a daughter of God. And I remember her looking at me straight in the eye and saying, Troy, I don't need no Bible to tell me what I believe to be true deep within here, that I am a child of God. And that is fundamentally the first cause of who I am. Once Jesus' family came to him, his mother and brothers and sisters, they thought he was a little bit out of his mind of the things he was doing. So they called her. And they said, would you come out and speak to us? And the message got into Jesus and he was inside a room filled with people. And they said, it's your mother and your brother and your sisters who are calling for you. Jesus' reply was earth shattering. He said this, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? He said, whoever does the will of my father, God, is my mother and my brother and my sister. You see, Jesus understood the way in which he would bring his kingdom here on earth, his reign of peace and his life and his good news, is that if everyone can become a son and a daughter of God, and that they would have a fundamental different identity, not shaped by their past or their future or their ethnicity or what's been done to them or what they do, but that fundamentally they are more than anything else. A daughter or a son of the living God. Paul went on to write in another place. He says, in light of Jesus, there is no longer Jewish ethnicity or Gentile non-Jewish. There is no slave or free. There is no man or woman because everyone is one in him. That doesn't mean that all of those designations collapse But if you like the designation that is most profound, that identifies someone, or if you like defines who they are, he says, is your relationship to Jesus and therefore to his father. All those other designations are subordinate and fall underneath. (laughs) So what does this mean? You're a daughter or a son of the living God. 
You've been transferred from darkness into light. What does it mean? Well, firstly, it means that when we go back into COVID, I might have fears, but I'm not afraid. I might have fears, but I'm not overcome. You see, the first followers of Jesus so held on to these truths of their identity and the new perspective that they were caught up in. That it says in history that when the plagues hit Rome and people were dying and they were fleeing from the city, it was some Christians who would run back in. Why? Because overwhelmed with a sense of love for the elderly and the young who were dying, they would nurse them even if it meant they contracted those plagues and died themselves. History tells of the profound sense of conviction they held that even if they died, they would live. You see, when COVID strikes, I might have some fears, but I'm not afraid. Why? Because I'm wrapped up in a bigger story. I'm wrapped up in a new identity that's shaped in him. I'm on a winning team. And I believe that deep here. What does it mean for the person who lives in a consumer-driven world? Where social media seems to inflate our sense of identity and ego and we put and we post our perfections on. So not only can we tell other people about our perfections, but we can also allow them to start to, if you like, compare themselves to other people's perfections all around. What does it mean to live in a world where all of a sudden my significance is being shaped by the images, the Perfect, unique, elaborated on images that just don't seem real, but yet I can compare myself to so profoundly. Well, it means that when I actually take hold of God's truths, like Stu was saying, I can begin to renew my mind. That when I hear those other thoughts and those other ideas swirling around and those comparisons and how much I feel as though I'm falling short, I can actually begin to grab hold and take hold of what's true. And I can weigh it up and assess it and say, is this really truly who I am? And I can actually, if you like, begin to identify it and place it to the side and take hold and grab hold of another truth, God's truth. That who I truly am is a renewed individual on the inside out. That I am a daughter and a son of the living God. And this truth is the most profound truth. Maybe some of the best thing I could do is stop posting my perfections. In fact, maybe just stop posting at all. And begin to renew my sense of self. I once heard of a man who was caught in a chapel reading his Bible. (laughs) A student came in and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm reprogramming my mind. You see, with all of the different stories that go and collect in our minds and our heads, sometimes we need to get caught up in another narration, a truthful narration of who we are. What does this mean for the person who's often found themselves telling a story in their head that they've grown up with? It's like a tape that's being replayed so that any time something happens to them again, it's that same tape that comes up of how they're a failure, of how they don't meet the mark. I know some uh, 
Business people are at the top of their game in their business world because of a careless comment of a teacher or a significant other who told them when they were younger that they didn't have the intelligence to make it into the field that they wanted to be in. So for the rest of their life, they've spent actually proving them wrong. The hardship about that, though, is you have to keep on trying to, if you like, meet the expectations of someone else rather than living in the reality The freedom that comes through knowing Jesus and in him defining who you are. I remember a young boy saying to himself, I don't care if they don't like me, I'll make them respect me. Wow. Well, firstly, that was a lie. And secondly, you can spend the rest of your life trying to prove something to someone else. One of the powerful transforming things about coming to know Jesus is that he shapes the sense of who you are from the inside out. That's transformative. Paul says in another place, I want you to take every thought captive. Identify those things that are untrue. And put them under, if you like, who Jesus says you truly are. You're a daughter or son of the living God. And when you come to know him, he welcomes you into his family As though you never left. He puts on a new top, calls you into his winning team, washes you clean and welcomes you home. That's his truth. I wonder how God might be speaking to you today. I wonder if there's a story or a tape or a narration that still enslaves you. That by knowing his truth might set you free. I wonder if you hear this morning... And there's been bullying or name calling. And you're aware of it. Well, I'd encourage you to tell someone, tell someone older. But I also want you to hear what God says about you is that he loves you and you're his treasured possession. And I want you to know that this morning. I wonder if we might pause here wherever you are. And I might pray and ask that God might take the truths of who he says you are, your identity at the core. And they might shift them from here. So like that woman I visited in hospital that day, you might know from here that you are loved, that you are part of God's family. And that's all because of what Jesus has done for you. So maybe I'll just pause right now. And you might be hearing God speak to you this morning and I just want to pray that he might powerfully speak to you and take this truth and embed it deeply within who you are. Would you pray? Father God, here in this place right now, wherever anyone's listening from, I ask that you might meet with them. Meet with them in their homes. Meet with them out in their their back decks. Meet with them in their holiday space. Meet with them wherever they are. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you might reveal to them deeply this sense of conviction about who you say they are and what's been accomplished through your son, Jesus. Father, right now, I ask that you might be taking out old tapes and reinserting a new one. I ask that you might be healing old wounds and 
and giving a new voice. I pray, Father, that you would be alleviating fears. There might be a sense of conviction that even though we might have some fears, we are not afraid because of who you are and what you've done. And that what constitutes Christian is far deeper and richer than anything else that can be offered in this world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought we'd pause right now, just before we share in a communion space together. And go back about four weeks to when there were some people who were gathered beside a river in Warrandyte. And they were declaring that they were followers of Jesus. They had a conviction that they shared and they wanted to go public in telling all. Why don't you have a revisit of this idea, Christian? And then we're going to listen to a song in which I'd invite you to pause and invite God to speak to you. Have a watch now.